Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Norman Fenton. Norman is a Professor of Risk and Information Management at Queen Mary University in London, as well as the Director of Agena Risk. Now, uh, he also has around, give or take, 400 publications in his name, as well as published a few books as well. And uh, Norman, that's a very, very brief little nutshell into who you are can you maybe take two minutes tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and then we're just going to dive on in yeah sure so I'm, I'm a mathematician by training and my current focus is on critical decision making and in particular on what we call well quantifying uncertainty using causal probabilistic models that combine data and knowledge and it's an approach which we call sort of smart data in contrast to sort of the big data fad and unlike others in this space, we don't just do number crunching. So we look at causal explanations for the data, biases, uncertainty about its accuracy, and key information that's missing. And a lot of our work has resolved around um, using these, these sort of Bayesian methods to do statistical safety and risk assessment in critical applications like transport, consumer products, stuff like that. I've also done a lot of expert witness work. Um, looking at impacts of different types of evidence, specifically things like forensic match evidence like DNA. But the key thing is that much of the work that we were doing prior to the COVID crisis was actually in medical decision-making, and in particular, improving diagnostic and prognostic accuracy using a combination of, often you have limited data, you don't have a lot of data for these types of medical decision-making problems and combining that with a sort of expert judgment. And I was leading a large interdisciplinary project, which was focusing on chronic conditions like diabetes, arthritis, and heart failure, working with specialist clinicians. So it was kind of like inevitable that when the COVID crisis arrived, I'd be drawn into looking at COVID data and decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah. You're already kicking around in in the neighborhood of yeah. uh, healthcare the the covid situation so it's only natural i think that one your curiosity would peak a little bit and two that when things maybe weren't adding up you'll you take a deeper dive into the statistics yourself especially yeah. given your background now that um kind of brings us neatly onto the fact that you have a whole bunch of publications and work that is done prior to any of this COVID stuff. And a lot of that is published, peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, in, in the recent months or recent year or so, you found that the publication aspect is um, difficult would be putting it mildly. You had some stuff published uh, with your COVID work, but then all of a sudden that came to a bit of a grinding halt, right? Yeah. Yeah, because, well, interesting enough, right at the beginning, so we we published very early on in sort of reputable journals on, on, on COVID because we were looking at, I guess, stuff which was, wasn't considered to be challenging the narrative. What we were doing is we were using this sort of Bayesian causal modelling to, to sort of identify, uh, again, as I said before, explanations for the data we were seeing. So, for example, um, there was a lot of stuff early on about very big, differences in the case fatality rates of the sort of countries which should have been similar, you know, in, in Europe, you know, comparisons with to England, Germany, and stuff like that. And people were saying, ah, this must be due, you know, they've, they've got it, they've, they've got a much lower case fatality rate. So that means that their lockdown or their is working or their hospital system is doing better and stuff like that. But actually, it was much more, there were much more significant explanations like, for example, how you classify, how you report, whether or not, how you're reporting COVID deaths. So, for example, right at the beginning in the UK, um, and also, of course, the amount of testing you were doing, critical things, and they weren't being taken into consideration. Now, in the UK, at the start, right from the beginning, we were defining a COVID death as anybody who tested positive with a PCR test, anybody who died within 28 days of testing positive with a PCR test, right? So that already, you know, that, I mean, of course, that ever since we now know the fundamental problems of that, because we don't know whether they're dying because of COVID or with it, and there's all those problems. Now, at the beginning, at the beginning, the only people in those early months, the only people in the UK who were really being tested, getting the PCR test, were people 
who were, were already hospitalized with, with, with the symptoms of COVID, yeah. okay? And so these were already people who were gravely ill with, 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 with the virus. I mean, also some frontline, obviously, medical workers were getting tested, but the vast majority were people who were very ill with COVID. And of course, a lot of those, you know, not a lot, but, but plenty of those were dying. So you had this, what appeared to be this massively inflated uh, infection rate, especially when you're using this 28 days of, of, of dying with a PCR test. Whereas, as I say, other countries were using different death reported that were defining a COVID death differently, were maybe doing more testing. And so what you had was these artificially inflated case fatality rates, i.e., you know, the 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 lethality, let's say, of, of COVID was being exaggerated right from the start. So we we looked at that, we looked at we again looked at data on all different countries and we came to the conclusion very early on that the infection rate, i.e. the number of people who were getting infected, was almost much was much almost very much higher than was being reported. But the fatality rate, i.e. how deadly it was, was much lower than was being reported. So infection was more widespread than people believed, but nowhere near as, as, as fatal and, and as deadly as people were saying. So we were publishing, well, we were publishing that stuff and the countrywide comparisons and all that stuff was, was being sort of, wasn't really challenging now. In fact, here's the interesting thing that we were saying that one of the problems why you're getting this, these distorted figures is because it's so dependent on testing, on the number of people you're testing. And if you really wanted to get a feel for how widespread the virus was in the population generally, rather than those who are only in hospital, <laughs> you know, you need to do more um, random, random testing. We didn't realise at that time how bad and unreliable the PCR testing was. That was something that came later, right? So we were recommending this. And I'm not saying it was a result of our recommendation. I'm sure because other people, you know, were saying it. But that soon after, in the sort of summer, especially late summer of 2020, of course, in the UK, they started to do mass testing of asymptomatic people, children going all children going back to school, people going back to work after the first lockdown. You had this massive, massive exponential increase in the number of people being tested. And this, this was where things started to go wrong with going back to your question about the publications, because I started, we started, I and some colleagues, we started to point out, hang on a sec. At that point, the government was only reporting this exponential increase in, in cases. And of course, the more people you test, right? the more cases you're going to find. And most of those people, uh, people who, who either have mild symptoms or don't have any symptoms are never going to get symptoms, right? They're simply false positives. That's something else. I mean, we can talk about the false positive thing because that's a big thing because we'd already realised a lot of these were false positives, right? Through yep. other work we were doing. And so if you if you massively increase the testing, you're going to massively increase the, the, the number of cases. So, you know, a case is defined as a person testing positive on a PCR test, irrespective of whether that's a false positive, irrespective of whether they've got symptoms or ever developed symptoms, right? And so simply by pointing out the fact, actually, you need to at least divide the number of cases by the number of tests you're doing, right? So you've yeah. got, you at least normalise against testing. So that's when we found out that the act of dividing two numbers was a very, very subversive act, because at that point, Pointing this out and showing, actually, when you do that, you don't see there isn't there isn't not is there not there, there's not only an exponential increase. There's no increase whatsoever, really, other than sort of mild um, seasonal things, you know, that you in inevitably get with respiratory viruses. And so, from that point on, anything that we did, all the work we were doing, which was pointing this stuff up and pointing this stuff out, and was dependent on identifying these kinds of you know teasing out these kinds of problems with the data. You know, I, I was already, that was already the start being called, you know, spreading misinformation, a COVID denier, I was called. Um, and none of these publications got, they started to, they weren't even getting reviewed. They were, it wasn't, they just were getting rejected. They weren't getting reviewed. So we submitted papers on all, you know, number of aspects of this sort of testing, the, the whole sort of testing issue and the numbers coming out of that. And they were saying, 
this is not, it was either, it was not accepted, not reviewed on the basis that it wasn't of sufficient interest or it was out of scope, bizarrely, even though everyone was talking about this. And, and it got to a stage later on, once we then, later on, of course, we weren't doing anything with vaccines. When we started to look at the issue of efficacy and safety of vaccines and highlighting some issues there, let's just say that was when, at that point, we couldn't even get our papers onto the preprint service. That's unheard of. You got blackboard essentially. <laughs> so yeah. the you know the only place where we could get where we where we could get anything out in public apart from our blogs was on um a, 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 there is a, a preprint server called ResearchGate, which isn't sort of recognized as highly as the other preprint servers like MedArchive and Archive. But so it's almost like it's the worst, you know, it's the sort of the least, you know, people sneer at you. You're, you're really almost if, you've got, if you've got to go to research gate, it must be rubbish, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh if you were to prepare your presentation at school from a Wikipedia page kind of thing, that's yeah. all. it's oh, got yeah. all the info, but that, that's where I've read a fair bit of uh, your work yeah. uh, doing research for this as well. Um, we, we've covered a fair bit of ground in, in that answer, actually. Um, just to uh, sort of bring things back a little bit, one of the first things that you mentioned was the infection and fatality rate and the big big issue there with the fact that we're only testing people that were virtually knocking on death's door already in hospital and in the beginning we know there was a massive massive increase in death rates as well so essentially what you're getting at there is if you're only testing the people that are a higher likelihood are going to die and you're not testing anyone that's kicking about at home that's got the sniffles you're going to lose a massive massive part of the picture and then again like you mentioned the infection rates were much higher than we thought and the fatality rate once you get a picture of the true infection rate which i i don't think even to this day we have a real idea of what the actual infection rate is so much uncertainty about that still and that's where i wanted to head to next as you also mentioned that the pcr tests which the last two years have been based off of essentially also had a big question mark about them because yeah. uh, at least in, in the stuff that I read initially, it wasn't a test that was fully validated yeah. and it was given approval within a few days of it being produced. Yeah. Um, can you maybe talk to us about the false positive rates? And also another important thing that maybe doesn't get picked up as often is there's also a false negative rate as well. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the, false, the, the, the false negative rate is actually quite, is actually generally much higher than the false negative rate, although uh, the way it works, it doesn't, it's not as impactful on what you can conclude from a, uh, a positive test as the, as, the false pos, as the false positive rate. So here's what people don't, there's so many things about this that people don't understand, right? What we, it, we don't know a lot about the, the actual so the, a false positive is simply defined as somebody testing positive on this PCR test when they don't have the virus. Yeah. Okay. Now that's dependent on so many things for a start because because there's the issue about whether or not they're sim- symptomatic or asymptomatic because of course you can be symptomatic and not have the virus. You can have similar symptoms and not have the virus. You can be asymptomatic and not and still have and still have the virus as well, but you're much more likely not to have it. But the point is that it's dependent on that. Of course, it's dependent on what sort of cycle threshold you're running the tests at, right? We also found issues with a major problem, which created an enormous number of false positives, was where they were simply, and which is not well known. We, we wrote, but we're the only people who raised this issue properly, was the fact that in the UK, over a quite a long period of time, in 2020 and 21, they were actually determining that they were classifying tests as positive on one gene when the minimum requirements, both from the W World Health Organization and from the manufacturer, kit manufacturers, was it had to be at least two genes. And we found that there were weeks where 30%, approximately 30% of the positives were actually on single genes. So by definition, they should have been ruled out completely. Yeah. They were never should never have been classified so things like that but here's here's the biggest misunderstanding of all the false positive the truth the false positive rate let's say for an asymptomatic person is actually we know is actually very low right it's it can let's just 
that's it's actually less well under one percent right but that doesn't matter it's not the what matters in determining how many people who test positive are wrongly positive as opposed to the false positive rate is what the infection rate is what the population infection rate is Hmm. for that population you're testing so let me give you i'll actually spell out an example here let's just suppose that we know that let's take the let's take the asymptomatics because so many people who are being tested are asymptomatic right among the asymptomatics right we know that let's say in a given period we know that let's say one in a thousand are do have the virus Let's suppose that. That's actually, um, yeah. Let's suppose that one in a thousand at any one time who don't have the symptoms are um, do have an, do have the infection. Mm-hmm. And let's suppose that um, we we ran, we're randomly testing these asymptomatics. So we test ten thousand of them. So we're testing ten thousand asymptomatic people. Then we know that about ten of those really do have the virus. Okay, so think about that. And let's suppose, okay, let's suppose the test is accurate. It doesn't have false negatives. So I suppose all of those 10 test positive, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got 10 who really have the virus out of the 10,000 who are testing positive. So that leaves just under 10,000, 9,990, just under 10,000 who we know don't have the virus. Now, let's suppose the false positive rate is 100, is 1%. So it's low. One one percent. That still means that actually about hundred, just under hundred of those others who don't have the virus will test positive. That means we've now got ten who have the virus. We know out of the ten thousand, but we've now got a hundred who test. They they test positive. But we've got the hundred who don't have the virus who test positive. So actually, that means that only ten out of the hundred and ten who are testing positive have the virus. So actually, that's that's basically, you know, you've got a full. There's less than a ten percent chance that you've got the virus when you test positive, if, given that you're asymptomatic. Yeah. Even though, so basically, the number, the percentage of false positives around is that you know it's just about ninety percent. Even though the false positive rate is only one percent, that's why you've got to balance out. It's it's not the the false positive rate. In fact, we know from it from we did, actually looked at it, real data on this. We looked at a study of asymptomatics in, in Cambridge, and we know that the actual false positive rate for, well, the approximate false positive rate for asymptomatics was actually less than less than half a percent. But nevertheless, it was less than half, but nevertheless, over 80% of those testing positive were false positives because the infection rate generally was so low. So it still meant that most of those testing and people don't get that difference, right? And so people, and it's even what, and, and one of the problems is as follows. So people say, well, hang on a sec. How is it possible if so many, if, if such a high proportion of those asymptomatics were tested positive, really false positives, how come, you know, in the summer of 2020, there were so few people who were PCR positive? And there's another, there's a set completely different reason for that, which nobody seems to realise. And it's it's so obvious and it's true, and we know it's true, is that when there were very low numbers of people testing positive, right, because the infection rate was really low then, and in fact, not that many people were tested, were being tested anyway, they were, they were actually doing confirmatory testing then. And when you do confirmatory testing, right, assuming you've got independent tests, it's almost impossible then to get a false positive, right? So, because then it becomes incredibly, you know, it's, it's you know, probability that you get false positive tests the same person twice in a row is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly unlikely. But of course, they never did. Half when they were ramping up the testing, doing the mass testing, they never do confirmatory testing. A person, if you test positive on a PCR test, you don't get invited back. Very rarely, you're going to get back, invited back for, uh, you know, positive to you. That's it. You, you have to isolate. You're classified as a case. That that was it. You are you are a COVID case officially. Yeah, yeah. I only know of one person in the last two years uh, that has had a confirmatory test, and that was because she's a doctor, and yeah. she managed to get herself back into testing again because she was a hundred percent positive that the test was wrong, yeah. and she wanted to keep working, so she went and got herself another test, 
came back negative and was like, right, game on. I'm going to continue on doing what I'm doing. The interesting thing is whether I bet you that first that first positive, they bet they classified that as a case. Because that's the thing. They don't distinguish. They don't individualize it. It's just counted as a case. So the fact that person subsequent was found not to be a not to be positive still doesn't they don't delete that number from the case total you see yeah 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 which brings us on to another interesting point of the chicanery with the numbers right that you've already mentioned a few times that we had the sudden bursts of uh, uh case rates we had these sudden bursts where there was mass testing of absolutely everybody before we start talking about how the numbers were played with a little bit, can you maybe talk to us about why you came to the realization of mass testing maybe wasn't a great idea? We've kind of touched on it with the explanation you just gave of the PCR testing, but can you maybe give a, 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 a bit more of an answer as to why mass testing also wasn't well, really one thing, needed? That mass testing, I mean, let me say in advance, that I've, really focus mainly on UK data. I do know quite a bit about other countries, but but most of what I'm going to say is relevant, you know, to the, the UK. UK. I'm sure it, it does carry over. So when they did that, they started that mass testing, right, just after they eased the first lockdown, right? Yeah. And, of course, what happened was you get this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So you start to, so they thought, well, we're going to have to mass test because just in case now we've opened up, you know, if the case rates start going up again, we're going to have to lock down again. Well, of course, you start the mass testing and given the problems I've already explained about these sort of, the, you know, the issue with false positives. And of course, what happens is that apparently then you, you, you see, well, okay, we've got the case rates, we've got the massive increase in case rates, right? And so that's now going to drive policy decisions about lockdowns, which it did. Yeah. You even get, even before the full lockdown, that was this interesting thing. So we had a full lockdown, again, came again in December of 2020 in the UK. But it was interesting because even before that, they started, they had these incredible decisions, they had these incredible policy decisions whereby individual areas or councils in the UK were told that they had to introduce their own restrictions council-wide, district-wide restrictions, if the number of cases, listen to this, the number of cases reported was more than 100 per 10,000 population. Not per 10,000 tests, but per population. So therefore, if you wanted to either avoid lockdowns, if you're in charge of a council, you want to either avoid lockdowns or, or get lockdowns, you just have to increase or decrease the, num- the amount of testing you do. It had nothing to do. It was, it's the most insane thing. I couldn't believe that this was being done. They, they, wasn't, they were literally not taking account of the number being tested. It was simply based on the number of cases they found per population of that district. I mean, it's just in, it's just insanity. It's almost like they were given a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card of whether or not they wanted to or not to just by, like you say, turning the dial on the amount of tests that they were doing. Exactly. And given and given that the narrative, and this is when, of course, why this became really problematic is because you already had the narrative then, the, you know, that there's the code, the vaccine is coming, right? And so and so the the kind of like the zero COVID people, you know, yeah. and, 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 as well as those, let's say, who have, were invested in the whole, whole sort of vaccine, you know, the pharma those with sort of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company funding, et cetera, those who have some sort of interest, let's say, in the vaccines. That's when you had this narrative that, ah, well, now, now, if we, if we've got a reason, if we can lock down, if we, if we lock down before, then we can, you know, by the time the vaccines come in, you then the vaccine's going to save us, but let's lock down, let's lock everything down until the vaccines come. That's the zero COVID. And so a lot of people were had a, had a kind of an interest. Their narrative was focused on lockdowns for that reason, because it fitted in the weight for the, you know, let's, let's, let's absolutely do everything possible to minimise the spread of COVID until we've got the vaccines, right? And so the testing numbers driving that narrative of, of, of the lockdown narrative. Mm. 
And what's more, this is what really gets me is people weren't looking at other indicators, which were there, which were showing that these supposed massive second and third surges in the winter of 2020 and early 2021 were not really, were not really COVID. There was nothing that much there of COVID at all because you only had to look at the NHS um, data, the National Health Service data on uh, COVID triage, not ambulance triage calls and, and, and actual ambulance visits. And what you saw there was a you did have the real peak in the when the pandemic was really on in March and early April of 2020. It was very high. But thereafter, all you had was the normal winter respiratory visors, just sort of small, you know, that it didn't fit in with the peaks that you were seeing and the case numbers being reported, you know, by the other government dashboard of just the case numbers. And um, was that from the ONS uh, case numbers then? The, yeah, 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 yeah. That, was the, that was the ONS case numbers, yeah. So th- this is um, where we come into the chicanery with the numbers. As, mm. as you mentioned, there's other ways that you can almost verify the data. Um, there's a number of different systems or ways in the UK to do that. But if I'm not mistaken, you guys have also looked at previous waves of influenza right in in previous years and yeah although it was very they this is something that we were looking at we looked at very carefully early on and then then basically what happens they it suddenly became they they got it was we no longer had access we couldn't get access to the detailed influenza data it used to be there and then i think that the because people like us maybe were you know were looking at this it suddenly became very difficult to get that to get that data but but certainly, um, well, we looked at other, there, there are also things like the, um, uh, the other thing you have to look at was the, the, formal record, the formal reporting of infectious diseases, right? And, and, and that you see that it's, it's, there's almost nothing in COVID there. Whereas, of course, there was, you know, compared with previous years of influenza, even mm. it was low, it was even lower than that. So that was a curious thing. And, and people have said to us, ah, yeah, but the reason for that is that doctors know, know not to bother with that, even though actually it's a legal, my understanding it's actually a legal requirement to, to report every incidence of, of every um, case of COVID should have been reported there, but almost none were being reported. So you've got, yeah, these completely different databases, like the infectious diseases co- databases, which where COVID is almost non-existent. Mm. Right. It really is. It's really almost non-existent. But as I say, they've got their excuse already lined up for that. Oh, yeah, but doctors were not sort of knew they didn't really have to report it there. Well, that's not clear. Again, that's something that other people are sort of challenging that. That's a, that's a separate issue. But it, so it's been very, very difficult to, to make those comparisons with, with influenza. But so I think the, the best indicator that that. Um, of the extent to which it was being exaggerated were, is simply looking at the, you know, the, the NHS triages on, on, on COVID, how that changed from the early, when it was when there really was a pandemic to compare to, to what, was, what was seen later. Um, and then, you, of course, there's the other issue about, yeah, then you saw, you had things like the Delta. You had, there's definitely, there definitely was an increase in summer, let's say, of 2021 with the sort of the Delta variant. I mean, that's curious. I that's so that's when I got I got COVID then in the summer of 2021. So I know it's real, and I know it's sort of it's a sort of a nasty thing to have. Um, and you know, there, you know, what you know, again, was that is that what you'd expect from a normal, you know, when you've got a virus like this in circulation, it is going to be. It's going to be seasonal. I was curious. There was, I mean, that's something that, you know, that's, of course, there are people who have their own explanations about that. And people, you know, people have suggested, of course, that was when, of course, the mass vaccination program started. And since we now know that it really is a leaky vaccination, you know, there's, of course, a hypothesis that that really unusual, that was an unusual, let's say, you know, surge, that was an unusual surge. Um, you know, what's, you know, what, what was the explanation for that? Okay. So that is, yeah, that, 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 that's, let's say open to debate. Yeah. I think that's, that's the interesting bit around Delta is the fact that, as you say, 
we have seasonal um, moments for respiratory viruses. And that was during yeah. the summer, which is one of those times where you yeah. don't expect exactly. one yeah. to be about. So that's that's where it gets curious with that. And I think that's um, sort of another topic uh, in its entirety of why exactly did we get that? I've, I've spoken with um, an immunologist about the leaky vaccine situation mm. as well. And it's, again, another interesting thing to to see and to look into but one of the other things with the vaccination program and i think this is something that you've mentioned on previous occasions is one way to look at the overall efficacy of what we're doing is um excess mortality rates and there seems to be a correlation and correlation doesn't always equal causation of course to an increase in excess mortality right around the time of um these drives for the vaccine push for an extra dose and we're mm -hmm. now looking at i think boris mentioned recently uh, a fourth dose might be needed mm -hmm. um can you maybe talk to us one about excess mortality yeah. Two, there was also a freedom of, of information uh, at request made that looked at the amount of people that died of COVID with no other underlying conditions that yeah. came out to about 17,000 and why that being touted in and of itself as only 17,000 people um, died of COVID is also a little bit of misinformation because that's not the only measure that we can use, whether yeah. or not COVID was the only thing. So why don't we start there? before we go on to the excess mortality. Interesting. I, 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 I'm that, that 17,000 thing, I, I prefer to look at what a much more, uh, a much more unambiguous figure, which was the study, which was the data on hospital, on, on COVID hospitalization deaths in the first year, right? So there were in the UK, there were 95,000 COVID positive hospitalization deaths. Yeah. So that's classified as COVID, right? People died in hospital. And we know that left only 4,400 of those were people who didn't have at least one serious comorbidity, hmm. right? Um, and of course, even those, even those were not necessarily, even though amongst, not even, not necessarily all of those 4,400 died because of COVID either, because Again, it still meant that they they could have been an accident victim. They would still have been classified yeah. as, as COVID. So, so we know we know that the proportion who truly die only because of COVID, right, out of those who have been classified as COVID deaths, is very small. Mm. Right? So that seventeen thousand out of I can't remember over the time period sort of is also you know is is, is confirmed to that. But I prefer to look at that because I know there's a that. I haven't got access to it now, but I know the paper that looked in depth at those, and there's no question in those statistics because these were from the, you know, they were from the NHS records for each individual patient. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Really So there's that, um, there's that issue in terms of excess, in terms of excess deaths. The problem is, of course, the massive problem is there are so many potential explanations for the excess deaths, right? It could be car crashes. It, it could be, well, no, but it's how much of it, you know, that you've got the sort of the, the impact of the, of the lockdowns, you know, the missed cancer diagnosis, missed heart, um, uh, um, diagnose, you know, heart problems, screenings, yeah, yeah, screenings yeah. and all of that stuff. Right. Um, the, uh, potential increase in suicides, but it's, it's mainly, it's mainly the, the uh, lack of access to health, lack of access to testing um, for sort of cancer and heart patients, especially that that's that could well have you know, could well have explained a lot of those numbers. So you could say, yeah, it's not due. That's not those aren't uh, due to COVID, but it's due to the impact of the restrictions imposed because of the lockdowns. You've got, you know, the thing is, yeah, we've got the evidence of the of the excess COVID deaths in that early period, but. Since then, again, we, you know, there's no, there's certainly no convincing evidence that 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 the periods of excess deaths have been due to uh, due to COVID. As you said, there have been peaks in excess death at times when with the vaccine rollout. I mean, we've this is the thing that we looked at 
in most detail recently that this this issue of what is happening with all because we look at the all cause rather than see it says better than excess deaths we look at all cause mortality and then you can compare for non covid deaths we then do look at the the historical life type life table values which is again is sort of the you know is is based on the same idea as the excess deaths we're looking at the historical you know how it mounts up against the historical figures but our assumption is that the non covid the non covid deaths ought to be all things being equal ought to be the mortality they ought to be similar to what you see from the lifetime life life table values with the normal sort of adjustments seasonal adjustments if necessary and of course that's where we've looked at this in detail we've we've done that and see what we found was that um the that's where we found that the that the ons statistics were simply flawed they they, they were they were they were using we were getting the statistics on the sort of the vaccine surveillance statistics on which all of the all of the statistics statistics about how about the efficacy and safety of the vaccine were based were all were basically flawed and therefore any conclusions that the government was making and still makes about the efficacy of the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine because it's based on statistics which we know are fundamentally flawed and or biased is, is it, it, that's a that's a problem. And why do we know they're flawed? Well, this was the study that we did. Of course, you know, we you know this is yeah. You know, people say, oh, it's not peer review. But actually, half a million people now actually, even though it's only on ResearchGate, have actually seen this work. So it's actually very widely publicised. And nobody can. And all of the all of the zero COVID people, all of our normal critics, who call tell say. It's 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 um we'll call it information. They haven't been out of challenge. Every challenge they've made, we've been able to say why that why that's invalid, and I'll can explain what some of the challenges were. But yes, please. Here's, here's the story. Here's what we saw. Here's what we found. We looked at the we we looked at the weekly data. First of all, we're looking at all cause deaths, most importantly of all. Which and why is that important? Because over a period of um, get for vaccinated against unvaccinated. Why is that important? Because if the vaccines are as effective and safe as claimed, then over a period of time, you'd expect to see the COVID deaths amongst the unvaccinated at a higher rate than the vaccinated. But on the other hand, if the vaccines are as safe as claimed, we shouldn't be seeing any significantly more deaths in the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, due to adverse reactions. So when you add the COVID deaths and the non-COVID deaths together, what you should be seeing, if the vaccines are as safe and effective as claimed, is a lower mortality rate in the, in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated. Now, first of all, when the first data came out about vaccinated and unvaccinated and the, and the all-cause mortality, people were saying, well, hang on a sec, actually, there's a much higher mortality rate, all-cause mortality rate, in the in the vaccinated. But actually, that was because you, that people were looking at that was lumping all the age groups together, and you can't do that because that is unfair to the the vaccine in the sense that because most people who die are in the older age categories, and because the older age categories have by far the higher proportions of vaccinated, it's inevitable it's going to be confounded by age. So we always said, forget that. You've got to look at in the Pacific age categories. And that was very, we had to struggle hard to get the data. We had to get, the ONS weren't publishing that data. And so they were giving sort of, they were using models where we wanted the raw data. And it took a lot of time to get the raw data. Eventually, eventually we got the raw data for the age. It, it wasn't very well categorized, but it was good enough for the older age categories. So we had the 80 plus, 70 to 79 age category, 60 to 69. So. And then it was less between 60 and 10, which what that that big young category again was going to be massively age confounded. So you couldn't really do much with that, right? But it's these older age categories that we looked at because that was good enough. We weren't now age confounded. We could look at these and each week on a week by week basis over the whole of the 2021 data we had since I when the vaccination program started, we now had the data. By classific by vaccination status and whether they 
whether they died and whether it was classified as a COVID death or a non-COVID death. So we had superficially all the data we needed. And we found the following. When you plot it, in each age category, you get similar, you get a similar weird phenomenon, right? What you see is the following. When you look at non-COVID mortality, we were seeing these big peaks in non-COVID mortality in the unvaccinated coinciding with the time when the vaccination program peaked for that age group. And that peak occurred at different times for the different age groups. So you start with the 80 plus age group. They were, they were getting vaccinated first, earliest. So their peak, when they reached sort of the sort of almost 80, 90% of everyone getting at least one back, one dose, that was actually fairly early in 2021. And the peak, this weird peak in non-COVID mortality amongst those who didn't get the vaccine was happening at exactly the same time when, you, when the vaccination program had peaked. Now, why on earth, what is the possible explanation for the unvaccinated dying a non-COVID death at the same time when the vaccinated have just all been vaccinated? Doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, there's only one you can, and the same when you looked at the other age groups, you were getting a similar peak, but at a different time because they were peaking the vaccination at different times. So, you know, the, the 60 to 69 age group, their peak in the vaccination rollout occurred a couple of months later. And woe behind, that couple of months later was when the non-COVID mortality for the age group went up, right? And then it came down. Now, it turns out you can actually simulate. We know how you can get, we, we know how you can always get that sort of pattern, you will always get that sort of pattern for two on two reasons. They, it gives you the same thing. Either, either you're reporting the deaths, there's a one or two week lag in the reporting of the deaths. Well, that wasn't the case here, but the other one, which it was almost certainly, is you're miscategorizing. You're classifying people who recent, who've, people who die shortly after vaccination are being classified as unvaccinated. And when you do that, and we have ample evidence that that's happening, We've got even more evidence about that even since we first published this. When you get that, then you get this phenomenon. And that's what was explained there. And as soon as you take account of that miscategorization, right, then what you actually realize is happening is there's actually a slight peak in the all-cause mortality of the vaccinated, right, when the, during the vaccination. And, and that, of course, is probably due to the fact that those people... Um, who were being vaccinated first were those who were the, considered the most critical need. So you're getting people with, you know, who are already sort of immunosuppressed and maybe the, the vaccination in some of those cases for the particularly bad ones was simply speeding up what would have been a death within a few weeks anyway. Hence, you were getting that. But of course, you're not allowed to say that because that's suggesting that the vaccine is, kill, is killing people. No, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, that's... Now, the, what's interesting is, well, how do people, again, there's, a, there's more to it than that, but I don't want to go, into, I can't really go into all of the details, but here's the interesting thing. You know how, what the main challenge to this, our work, our observations were on this. They said, ah, it's the healthy vaccinee effect. They were saying the following. They were saying that the reason you got that peak, right, is because when the vaccine was first rolled out, when the vaccine was being rolled out to, let's say, each of those age groups, the ones who were close to death were not being vaccinated. And so they were dying at the time when the vaccine rolled out. No, we know that that's not true for two reasons. A, it doesn't match up. We can, you can, because we actually also got the data from, actually from the ONS, we got data about those who are, who are supposedly the most seriously Ill. Ill people. And so we, I'm actually, so when we factor that in, you see, no, it doesn't explain those peaks, right? Because you would see that it just wouldn't happen like that in the peaks. Because otherwise you're somehow predicting just at that time, that's when the most of these really seriously ill people are somehow dying. No, no, it yeah. doesn't later. It, they're not taking account of the fact that there are seriously ill people become seriously ill much, you know, in they over, become over seriously the Every day. Exactly. Not just exactly. on one particular week. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the other thing, is it's not true anyway because the the guidelines the NHS guidelines um, officially state that the people who are most critically ill were the ones who actually had to be vaccinated first and they were and we know we know that even you know people in care homes were were close to death 
were being vaccinated. There was no, they didn't say to them, we're not going to vaccinate you because you're close to it. It just did not happen. Because actually, if you think about it, you don't want to die. If you're close to vaccination, you don't want to die a horrible COVID death, you know. So if the, the idea was the vaccines can at least stop you from getting the COVID infection, which is going to make things really horrible, right? So, but yeah, so it's just not the case. And let's just really play devil's advocate here. Let's suppose, let's, okay, we'll accept their arguments. We'll say there's a healthy vaccine and then, and it really is the case, therefore, that there was this bias that, that the people who, who didn't get vaccinated were happened to be particularly unhealthy. And that's why you've got their, you know, that, that increase in their mortality rate. Right. But if that's true, Cheers. But if it, even if it is true, then fine. That means all of there's a bias in the ONS mortality data which you haven't adjusted for, and and whether whether it's because of so what for whatever reason, once you take that into account, like, still all of the figures on efficacy and safety are all null and void because they haven't adjusted for that bias. So which I either way you look at it, all of the I say all of this all of these conclusions based on it were basically wrong and, and continue to be wrong because they're still not fixing the problem. They say, ah, you know, the ONS, we've been in regular correspondence with them. So, no, no, we've got, we, we're absolutely sure that these people who, even if they die 24 hours after vaccination, we, we're still managing to get it recorded as vaccinated. Well, no, we, we, we suddenly found, we, we found evidence by looking at the other um, ONS mortality, because their surveillance data is based only on England and Wales, and then you've got other mortality data, the whole of the UK. And we we found, for example, there were 22,000 people who were within who died within two weeks of vaccination who were not in the ONS database. So there's all I mean, there's all kinds of problems with that. I mean, and of course the whole efficacy. So the safety figures are all. You know, you, you, you can't anything. That, so this this nonsense about where they say where they're saying things like, you know, 80 percent of, you know, of, of people who uh, are hospitalized or die with um, COVID are, are actually unvaccinated. There's all kinds of problems with that, not just because of this kind of data, the misclassification, but also because when you see things like that, they'll when they say. Uh, unvaccinated, they mean not fully vaccinated. I haven't had the haven't had the booster and, and ridiculous things like this, you know, mm. all that all that sort of nonsense that's been, you know, uh, being a bit pedantic about what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. And this yeah. is this is another aspect which, obviously, you guys, when you corrected the data, then saw, oh, okay, when we do include them in the vaccination group, then it sort of explains a, a little bit of this. Um, rise in all-cause mortality. Um, yeah, and, and overall, I should point out what we conclude overall. We're not saying that um, that the vaccinations increase all-cause mortality. What we're saying, because we haven't got, there isn't enough evidence of that, but what we can certainly say is there's no evidence at all that the vaccines have decreased all-cause mortality, and hence there is no, there is essentially no justifiable risk benefit for the vaccines because it because the that's the whole point if they're safe and effective they have to reduce all-cause mortality and there's no evidence that they do someone might argue that um ju just just to play devil's advocate on that bit someone might argue that uh, that they must have done something for both all-cause mortality and infection rates because like you said decisions that were made for the second lockdown in the uk and uh, for other lockdowns were due to the rise in uh, mortality and also the rise in infection rates. And then once we had the introduction of the, um, the vaccination, um, schedule vaccination uh, for COVID-19, these things slowly dropped. And then we didn't have as, and don't have as many lockdowns. Now, that being said, uh, there are increases in infection rates, but the mortality rate isn't as high. But the okay, well, we've got. I mean, well, there's an issue about the, what happened last summer, the Delta. That's, that's separate. That, but if you, if you forget about that, because um, that was after the max, mass vaccination program, and that was that was you know reasonably you know that was a reasonably sort of deadly uh, instance. Yeah, of it. yeah. Now, fine, you, you can say that, but then how do you explain? 
the fact that the case rates of, you know, you've got far more, you know, the, the vaccines certainly haven't stopped the case rates, right? And they certainly haven't. And when you look at our data, there's no evidence that the vaccinated are dying at a lower rate than the unvaccinated from COVID. So that's, that's the simple answer to that. What it means is that the COVID, you know, the, the Omicron variant is generally less, far less um, deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and um, people who are vaccinated are not being protected from it in, in any way whatsoever. There's no, it doesn't matter whether you're, if anything, if anything, we now see that actually, you know, you're probably better off not being vaccinated. If you want to avoid, if you want to avoid um, Omicron, even if you, you know, yeah, I won't say any more than that, but it's, uh, there was no, and of course things, there, there is also an issue, everything I said, of course, the reason why we wanted to do the age categorization was not just because you avoid the age confounder, but because by doing that, you might be able to see that there might be a, a benefit over risk for certain ages in having the vaccine, whereas in others there isn't. And that's the whole point, informed decision-making, right? Hmm. So it, it might be the case, you know, I'm not, I'm to tell you if I'm not convinced of any age group, age category, but at times it looked like at the beginning, before we knew further stuff, it looked like maybe for the 80 plus, there was a benefit over risk, mm-hmm. right? Not the others, but the things like, I mean, the things like, Doing it to children, like to healthy children, is beyond is beyond comprehension. I mean, did you know about this study that looked at the? Actually, I want to bring this up because I want to get the details of this right. Let me just check. I've got it here. While you're doing that, I'll. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Maybe I can I can share it with you later, and I can add it to the uh, podcast bits too. Okay. Um, there is uh, the the largest uh, or one of the largest uh, children's hospitals in Canada has a specific protocol that's been made uh, for children with uh, adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccine. They've had to roll out a full-on protocol as a result of the vaccination program. And yet it's still being pushed in in children, which I find quite concerning. But um, have you uh, pulled it up? Yeah, I've got it. Yeah. So here's so this was the this was the paper by um this was Walder Al, right? So this is a UK study. This looked at every so basically it looked at all hospitalizations of children from COVID in the whole of 2020, right? When it was at its, its worst, right? The whole of that year. There were 5,830 hospitalizations of children under 18. So anyone under 18 classifies as a, as a child. 5,830 in the whole of 2020. That incidentally is fewer than the previous year admitted with influenza. So that's the first thing to note, fewer than with influenza. Of the 5,830, 251, only 251 were admitted to intensive care at any time. And again, these are, pe- these are children, these are people under 18 with a positive PCR test. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean yeah, cool. positive. Now, 28 of those died, 28. However, they reviewed all the case notes. They reviewed the case notes of all of the people in intensive care, actually. But they certainly reviewed all the case notes in detail of those who died. So they've got access to the case notes. Yeah. This, is not, this is not conjecture and this is act- with access to the case notes. Clinicians doing this. They found that only eight of the 28 were confirmed as likely caused by COVID, right? Of the eight, of the eight, all had a comorbidity recorded, all of them. Seven of the eight had a life-limiting condition. Jeez. But to all intents and purposes, you could argue, well, not just, it's, it's definite, that in the UK, not a single healthy child not a single one under the age of 18 died of COVID in the whole of 2020. Not one healthy child. And yet they're wanting to push you know, the vaccine with all of the known adverse reactions, right, onto, onto healthy children. It's incomprehensible. Baffles the mind. It yeah. baffles the mind. I mean, you've got kids now that are having to deal with myocarditis that we have 
zero idea what the long-term consequences are going to be because they're now calling it mild myocarditis yeah, exactly, it, yeah. it's inflammation of your heart and you're a child yeah. you you haven't even hopefully not had the chance to have your first beer yet and and you've yeah. already got heart inflammation jesus but um it's baffling it's baffling to say the least because there's also now news of Pfizer looking at um, gaining an emergency youth authorization, use authorization for, I, I believe it's uh, six months old and up. It, it's, yes. Yeah. It, it just seems to go further and further and further. But with that there's said, legal rules on there in the US, but if they can get it to be, if they can get it emergency use authorization for children, then that gives them, uh, then it becomes part of the standard vaccine schedule. Yeah, exactly. That's the reason. Yeah. Anything part of the standard yeah. vaccine schedule, and I can add this into the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, the companies themselves are no longer held liable for exactly. any adverse yeah. events. Yeah. And the US has a whole separate thing that deals with any of that. So yeah. it basically mitigates any liability for any drug company that's on the child vaccination schedule, which is why yeah. there's like hundreds of, yeah. But that's a, a again a whole other kettle of fish. Um, bringing it back down to to the ballpark where we're playing today mm. with the the stats. Now, as you see it in terms of um, what you've seen with the infection rates and what you've seen with your work in the past, do you think that economically speaking? Um, or if we put the economic aspect into it, there was any justification for the lockdowns that we've seen due to the wider effects that they've had. Oh, look, I, I, my view on this is, you know, I'm a, I consider myself a sort of a you know, civil libertarian. I, even if even if COVID was as 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 widespread and as deadly as it was, there was never justification. On civil liberties grounds for lockdowns. In my, that's my personal view. Incidentally, that's why I, I absolutely declare a bias in all of this stuff because one of the reasons why, you know, I, I was I was really, uh, you know, concerned about it wasn't just there was no evidence presented for lockdowns. It was because of this obvious infringement of our of our civil liberties, right? That that I objected to it, um, but. Obviously, that the impacts, the negative impacts, have been massive, and, and will you know it's going to be difficult to recover from this for many, many years. You know, the the farming where, as someone said today, it's April the first today, which is April Fool's Day in the UK, with when people are now realising they're being hit with a bill for all the free, all of the free stuff given out. You know, for, for the lockdowns, you know, people didn't, you know, people were happy with the lockdowns because a lot of people, not everybody, a lot of people were simply being paid to do, you know, to do nothing. Sit at home. Yeah, you're on fire. What's even worse, but here's the thing. The other thing that always got me about lockdowns, what's absolutely appalling, is that the very people who are pushing it the most, right, and pushing hardest for the most, the hardest um, infringements of civil liberties were those who claimed to be the most, who previously sort of been the most sort of progressive. You know, you've got your, not just the, the political class, you know, let's say, uh, who Boris and progressive Kiesama. political yeah. class, but but academic. I mean, academics. The role of academics in this is appalling. Is absolutely. I feel ashamed of my profession. I am an academic, and I'm a, I'm ashamed that academics were at the forefront of pushing, you know, this abuse of our civil liberties. They were the ones who wanted to push down that, you know, lock down the hardest, you know, um, impose the most tyrannical restrictions. Um, and they, the whole point was, they they were ones who, who, were, who never lost a day's pay over it. They were sitting at home. They most ac academics pushing for this. You know, they had comfortable, you know, sitting in comfortable houses with gardens. You know, able to do all their work from a laptop. They didn't, you know, it didn't affect them. They didn't realize, you know, that deli people delivering their food, you know, had to take the risks that they weren't prepared prepared to take. You know, there's that mm. irony, and um, uh, you know, so they, the ones who were least affected by the by the outcomes were the ones who were the pushing it the most it's a disgrace it, I, I don't understand, i just don't understand it nothing well i you know i had my ideas on why because that's from right from early on i realized that a lot of those academics 
pushing for this, and a lot of the politicians as well, you know, they were quite open about saying, you know, it's the thing. We see this as the great, as the opportunity for the great reset. They wanted, they wanted this because it, it was a way of actually, you know, they wanted that sort of that sort of control and, and restrictions because it fitted into the, you know, the great reset narrative. Don't let Which, a of good course, it's going to waste. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and it's still being pushed in a way or, or, or manipulated in a way for resetting for climate change. Oh and yeah. Resetting absolutely. for currencies and all of this stuff. So I'm. Yeah. That's why it's not going to go away. Is it? No, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you had Rishi Sunak, what a month ago talking about um, as a result, having to bring in the uh, electronic, the, the digital currency rather. Yeah. And um there's also talk, I want to say, in India and Canada about utilising lockdowns for climate change now. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're doing it here, I mean, because they've already said, you know, you've got to think for the climate. And because, well, they're saying, oh, because of, you know, the, the oil prices and petrol prices are going up, they're talking about, you know, you don't drive on a Sunday and it's good for them. But, you know, it's all that zero car, you know, there's a zero carbon agenda and all of that. It's, it fits into it. I mean, look, I was on, you know, plenty of my academic colleagues were very were, were openly delighted about the lockdowns because they said it was helping the environment and they wanted it to continue because of that they were open about it there's no conspiracy here this is what a lot of academics were saying i can you know give you yeah you can g- give me names no don't don't yeah on the people are on the record there are plenty of academics i put i've got stuff on my blog with actual quotes and all this for, for this sort of stuff they were open about yeah. the about it you know being good good for the environment and it's it's yeah, people thing. they didn't care about businesses you know people who had small businesses this is the other thing again the people who get supposed to care about the working class the people who, you know, and the small business owners, they're the people who are destroyed, you know, most affected by this. And again, it's these, these so-called, you know, progressive politicians and academics who didn't, didn't give a damn about those. Didn't give a shit, no, not didn't at Didn't all. give a damn about those people. And it's funny because the only people that were allowed to, or the majority of people that were allowed to say something in contrast to the narrative were those that were pushing for these harder lockdowns yeah, and more draconian exactly, measures exactly. if you said otherwise you were deplatformed or called yeah. a kook or a conspiracy exactly. theorist a hat which uh i yeah, exactly in, independent pleasure. sage were the ones criticizing the government most because they weren't locked down weren't hard locking enough. down hard and, hard and fast enough yeah, it's bizarre yeah, yeah. even keir starmer who's supposed to be standing opposite yeah. boris johnson and yeah. uh, should be a political party that is um calling the government into question taking them to task yeah. over their decisions wasn't saying hey what are you doing for civil liberties what are you doing to small businesses yeah. he was saying no 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 no. you, you got to go hard in the paint here yeah yeah, yeah you're sitting in second gear we can we can crank this up a little bit harder exactly. and a little bit yeah. longer yeah and absolutely you were seeing it from an academic perspective as well of people who like you say had the opportunity to sit in a garden and and enjoy themselves where there were many many people who were stuck in a flat with no access to green space and this comes into a whole other aspect of what you mentioned and the effects of excess mortality or cause mortality of suicide rates or of hospitalizations due to abuse and when kids weren't allowed to go back into school as a result of the mass testing um that also had a massive impact which um the, yeah, I mean, on child, so the, the impact on child, you know, education and their psychology is unbelievable. It's going to be, that's devastating. It's going to be ramifications of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's generational. If you're, if you're eight years old, you spent a quarter, of your, a quarter of your life, which is probably going to be a fair bit of the long-term memories, you know, six to eight. Yeah. You're not going to remember what you were like when you were four years old, but those memories will only be a lockdown and mask wearing and all the rest of it. And being stuck in four walls it's it's not just, it's not just that it's they've now been indoctrinated into this fear um narrative as well they never yeah. you know are they gonna recover from that yeah and it's it leans into a little bit of of the whole event 201 where there was the yeah. control over what's seen what's heard and what information yeah. is allowed to be disseminated um and and again 
it looks like it was planned to the nth degree yeah. in terms yeah. of how we're going to go about it and who's going to help push this wheel down the road. Yeah, I mean, it was the, exactly, and, and they they followed the they followed the two thousand they followed that two hundred one agenda, to, you know, to the letter, haven't they? Yeah. Even with the extent of the media, you know, the, the the restrictions on what the media could say and 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 how they would also promote the fear propaganda, all of that was in there. We've spoken a fair bit, and um, we've also spoken about the the numbers that have been thrown about and how it looks like the media academics were. Um, also helping to perpetuate the narrative of things are really quite dire where when you dig into the numbers it wasn't as doom and gloom on that note where do you think that we're headed to next do you think that this is something that is going to be able to be put to bed and put behind us or where, where do you see this going I don't think it's going to be I, I, I have grave concerns I, I mean the why, for example, uh, is despite all the evidence of the ineffectiveness of the vaccines and the potential safety uh, problems with the vaccines, even forget the forgetting the safety, that we know they don't work. The vaccines don't work, right? Given that they don't work, why are they still pushing it as hard? Why are they still determined to get everybody vaccinated, children vaccinated? It all fits into that digital. You mentioned it, the digital I move towards the digital ID. The only way I think they can really think they can pull off the international digital ID scheme is if vaccinations get included included on it. I, people won't be able to travel unless and visit all the countries unless that's unless the vaccination is part of that ID. And, and therefore, the move towards getting that ID accepted, and of course that then becomes your currency and everything, you know, your social credit scoring system and all of that. The vaccines are the are the key. The Without the vaccines, number. they're not going to get sufficient people effectively buying in to the idea of the digital ID. But if you're if if you're travel if, if being able to travel anywhere depends on it, people will just accept it and therefore it'll become part of it. And and that's 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 where I fear it's going. And I think it's it's always been about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's to an extent a bit of social conditioning that's gone into this yeah. to, to the acceptance but but norman thank you very much for your time i really really appreciate yeah, yeah. it and uh yeah um thank you i hope we can do this again sometime yeah nice yeah. to speak okay you too. cheers okay bye